Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Ruth. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find rest for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, There is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Amen. Morning, everyone. Uh, As we get going, I'd like to mention a couple of things quickly. You may have heard that in a couple of weeks, actually on February 5th, we are going to three services. And so, as you can see today, everybody gets the middle seat on the flight, right? Um, you're all packed in there, but beginning February 5th, we're going to make room for you. Uh, 9 a.m., 10.45 a.m., and 12.30 p.m. Parents of middle schoolers, you're going to want to make note, M Youth is going to be at the 9 a.m. service. Uh, and also next Sunday, you may have heard it on the video with our good friend Scott Morgan. We're having a special night of worship from 6 to 8 p.m. Love to have you there as we trust the Holy Spirit to minister in our midst. Child care is provided. All right, here we go. As you can see, we're in the middle of a series called Better Together, and we are looking at the ways that the gospel makes us, guess what, better together, yeah, and specifically we're looking at how we can fulfill our mission to make disciples in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational context, and so let's ask, what can help us do that? What can help us fulfill our mission? Well, actually, the book of Ruth can of all books in the Bible, and specifically this chapter here, chapter 3. In Ruth, chapter 3, here's what you're going to see today. You're going to see the hand of God. 
shaping history, shaping people to bring about his mission in history. In chapter three, we're going to see God take a small group, a small multi-ethnic, multi-generational group of people and position them to shape and touch and change history itself at the very point history needed shaping and touching and changing. Let's ask, how does God, how does God shape us? How does he shape people to actually change history? It's an important question. And so we're going to see three things here, how God does this, how God shapes us to change history. First, we're going to see his hidden glory, then friendship story, and finally, redemption's power. Let's go here, number one, and look at some hidden glory. And the events of this chapter of chapter three actually are launched, as we read back in chapter two, in verse one. It starts this, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, right? Name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields, pick up some leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Let's pause and recap the story. If you're new here, uh, you may not know the book of Ruth takes place around 1300 BC. Uh, And during that time, the story focuses on a Jewish couple by the name of Naomi and Elimelech. And when a massive famine hit their homeland and hometown, they move their family. They relocate to the hostile neighboring nation, a nation named Moab. But while they were there, it gets much, much worse for the family. The head of the family, Elimelech, dies, leaving his wife and two sons and their two Moabite daughters-in-law. And then it gets worse again. The two sons themselves die, leaving all three women now widowed, alone, and destitute. And so Naomi says, let's go back. She decides to try to go back to her homeland, to try to find a way to live. And as she and her two Moabite daughters are on their way, one of them by the name of Orpah decides that her multi-generational, multi-ethnic future her Jewish mother-in-law, is going to be too hard. And so she turns back and goes home. But Ruth, the one about whom the book is written, decides to stay. And so she and Naomi return. They sort of stagger back into their hometown and now try to find a way to make their lives go and survive. And so they do the only thing they know they can do, which is to send Ruth out into the fields to glean the leftover grain on the ground. And not only does that happen, not only do they start a new life, but you read by the end of the story, Ruth meets this amazing guy named Boaz. They have a child who has a child who has a child who grows up to be David, Israel's greatest king. He unites the nations. He brings peace. He brings prosperity to the nation of Israel and through David and through David's family. One day, Jesus Christ was born. And because Jesus was born and lived and died and was resurrected, I know big Christian truth claim here. We should believe that. But because all that happened, here we are today. This church, your life, whatever reason you're here. Now, that's an amazing story. That's an amazing plan. That's what the book of Ruth is really all about. Until you you look up and you begin to ask, well, hang on a second. How did, how did God do that part again? How, what, you know, how did he pull that off? How did he begin to intervene in the world more than a thousand years before Jesus was born? How did God shape 
this crucial moment in redemptive history. Let's look. Verse 3 tells you. Not going to be what you think. It says, so Ruth went out. She entered a field, began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz from the clan of Elimelech. And just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. What's that? I don't know if you caught that. Two things here. It says, as it turned out, this literally means it just so happened. Meaning massive coincidence. Like Ruth like won the farm picking lottery here. Is that what it's telling me? And then it says, just then Boaz happened to arrive. Morgan, are you saying today that if Ruth didn't just happen to pick the very field Boaz just happened to own, if she hadn't not only just happened to pick his field, but just happened to show up at the moment, he just happened to walk to the door to the office that day. God's whole plan to redeem the world might never have happened. Morgan, are you saying that God's plan for the world and therefore for my life was hanging on one poor woman's choice one morning thousands of years ago to find a place to pick up food scraps to keep her starving mother-in-law alive. Is that what you're saying to me? Morgan, are you saying that God works through my ordinary, everyday choices even when I can't see it? That's exactly what I'm saying because that's exactly what this is saying. As a matter of fact, I'll go one step further. If you notice, the person of God never appears or speaks in the book at all. Now, sure, he's referenced, but he never speaks. He never appears at all. At all. And furthermore, unlike, say, I don't know, Elijah, who gets fire from heaven, Unlike Abraham, who gets a voice and like a torch and a whole flying, you know, smoking pot kind of thing. Oh, not smoking pot, but uh, sorry, wrong. That was bad. That was not in my notes. Uh, smoking torch kind of thing. Sorry. We're, this is Texas, not Colorado. All right. Um, we'll use the second service podcast. Um, anyway, moving on. Thank you. This is why you're here. It's live. Unlike Abraham, who... Got the torch. All right. Unlike Moses, right, who gets thunder, who gets a voice. Unlike Daniel, who gets an angel. What does Ruth get? Nothing, right? No angel, no fire, no miracle, no parting water. And yet God is involved in her life every step of the way. Shows us this. God's hand is frequently hidden in the moment, but his glory is always revealed in the end. See, the book of Ruth is telling you, don't make the mistake of thinking God is not involved in history at every moment. Don't make the mistake of thinking God is not involved in your life right now at this very moment, no matter how you may feel or how it may seem. Let me give you an example. I became a Christian, as you all know, on February 26th, 1995. Little Religion Chapel at the University of Houston. Go Cougs. And our coach is now your coach. Our people are your people. Your, our God is your God, apparently. Uh, I'm not happy about that, but anyway. Let's ask, how did I come to be standing there in a group of like, I don't know, 12 students on this campus? Well, I was at U of H because I was what was called... A National Merit Scholar, which you may know means I scored a particular level on the SAT. Now, U of H just happened to be 
One of the only schools to give a free ride, full scholarship to folks who uh, were National Merit Scholars. So it was free for me to go to. Didn't want to go there, but my parents didn't have a lot of money. So I went there. Uh, At the same time, I was also recruited to play baseball there at U of H. And so I showed up to play baseball for the University of Houston. And although I had been recruited by one coach, after I committed to the team, they just happened to fire the old coach and bring in a new coach who knew nothing about me. And even though I was recruited to play one position, the new coach just happened to put me out in the field to glean foul balls and balls on the ground (laughs) as the backup left fielder. What position did you play, Morgan? Literally, they stuck me in, in left field. But the starting left fielder was a guy named Chris who just happened to be the only Christian on the team, sounding familiar, huh? And day by day, he'd witness to me, invite me to this little group on campus called Every Nation Campus, and I showed up one night, and I met Jesus, and he changed my life, and one of the other 12 students in the room just happened to be the woman I'm married to now. Her name is Carrie, my wife. Now, I found out later, I actually made the lowest possible score, on that test to qualify for the national marriage status, which means literally if I had bubbled B instead of A or C instead of D on one test, I took one day of my life in my junior year of high school when I didn't fear God, wasn't caring about God, wasn't thinking anything about serving God, I wouldn't have gotten the scholarship, wouldn't have gone to Houston, which changed the coach, who changed my position, wouldn't have met Chris and my wife and Jesus all in a year. Yeah, Morgan... Morgan, are you saying that God's plan for your life was hanging basically on a coin flip in 1993 one morning? Now, it looked that way, but it only looked that way. Hear what I'm saying? See, God's hand, frequently hidden in the moment. His glory is always revealed in the end. Look at Ruth's story. I mean, God works through what to bring his plan about? He works through Famine, despite famine, despite poverty, despite death of loved ones, despite the terrible direction the nation was heading in. In the time, it was during the time of judges. It was an awful time. He worked despite Naomi's bitterness, Orpah's cowardice, and he will work in your life and will work in this nation no matter what. Don't make Naomi's mistake and think that God was finished with her life and story because tragedy struck it. Your life isn't finished. Your story's not over, no matter where you are. How would you know that God's not working in your life? Hmm? Could Ruth see that? No, she couldn't. But he was there all along. See, God's working in your life through your everyday, ordinary decisions. And do you know what? He's working in our nation. Even with things you never would have chosen, things that you don't like, you may feel like Naomi. You may think, man, life has dealt bitterly with me, right? And let me ask you, I mean, haven't though, Because of that, haven't the events in our nation opened up the people of this nation in a way they haven't been open in a long time? I mean, hasn't the very psyche and soul of our nation been ripped open like never before? I mean, God worked then through a disaster of a famine, through the scattering of a family to accomplish his purposes. And I'm convinced in the same way that the church of Jesus, in this church in particular, can have its greatest harvest we've ever had if we will, like Ruth, just go out into the fields again to glean, go out again and again and again to care for and love the people he's put into our life. She changed history just because she loved someone close to her. That's amazing. 
Ruth didn't believe her story was over. She experienced God's hidden glory. God shapes history through his hidden glory. And yet, yet, that's number one, and yet, he doesn't work without some kind of tool, some kind of leverage point. How else, let's ask, did he actually change history and prepare people for the Messiah? Oh, it's fascinating. Once again, not through miracles, fire angels, but through, number two of all things, through a friendship, through a friendship. And if there's one thing that Naomi does right in the book, it's that she intentionally pursues a relationship with her daughter-in-law. And therefore, it's through an intentionally built and costly, multi-ethnic, multi-generational relationship that God changed history. And I want to open up this idea just for a moment and look at the anatomy the anatomy of the kind of friendship that God uses to shape history. I'm convinced that the kind of friendships God uses to shape history are equal parts, here are the words, rest and risk. Rest and risk, or I'll put it like this, rest plus risk equals history shaping relationships. What do I mean? Look at this, chapter three, verse one. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, I must find what? rest for you where you will be well provided for. Now, before Carrie and I were ever married, I remember saying to other people about her, you know what? I don't think I could ever marry her. She's too good for me. Uh, no, uh, no I, seriously, I would love to marry someone just like her, but I'm, I think my stuff, you know, my junk would actually harm her, hurt her in some way. And she said the same thing about me. She said, I'd love to marry someone like Morgan. To which I said, yeah, you would. <laughs> you know you would. I'm kidding. I didn't say that. But she said, listen, I'd love to marry someone like that, but I'm afraid maybe I'd mess up his life. What's, what's all that? That's, that's Naomi's heart. That's a heart that seeks to provide rest for someone, to, for another person's life to be well provided for, not just its own life. See, that's first, but there's not just rest here. There's also risk because look at what Naomi says immediately. She says, now Boaz, see, she moves first from rest immediately to this risky plan, which basically involves Ruth showing up and proposing to a man she hardly knows. Not always the wisest move, but God used it here. But she does it. History's changed, but here's the point. History shaping relationships are equal parts rest and risk. You say, well, they're not just handing those out on a street corner, and you're right, which leads me to believe there are three main principles here about God-shaped friendships. First is that true friendships like this, they're just rarer than you think. They're rarer than you think. Yesterday uh, was my, actually today, sorry, today is my oldest son's birthday, and uh, we did a birthday thing for him yesterday with a handful of his friends, and one of them's a young guy named Will. And Will's dad's a guy named Phil, Phil Moss. I don't know if Phil's here today. You here today, Phil? Phil first? Sometimes Phil's second service. We never know. Phil's like the Holy Spirit. He kind of blows in, blows out. I'm kidding. Love Phil. Unpredictable. No, I'm serious. He keeps it fresh. Now, Phil and I have known each other for, I'm feeling good today, as you can tell. So (laughs) Phil's been here for about, actually, excuse me, Phil and I have been friends for almost 20 years. 20 years. It's incredible to me. I met him right out of college. I was uh, single. He was single before there was ever a Carrie in my life or a Melissa in his, and I was a young campus missionary. I asked him to support me and partner with me in ministry, and he said yes, and that was amazing. Yes, our campus staff was saying yes, and 
And for years, he's been so faithful. He and Melissa have been so faithful to Carrie and me and generous toward us. We would not be here if it weren't for Phil and Melissa. And this church wouldn't be what it is without them. And then yesterday, over some burgers and chicken sandwiches, we sat there and discipled this little small group of preteen teenage boys together, asking them stuff like, what's God doing in your life? What are some clues in your heart God's put there that's showing you his plan and direction for your life? What do, what do you want to grow up to be? What's God's word say about all? That's amazing. And, and let me tell you why he's such a great Christian. Total honoring moment for him because not because he's perfect, not because he doesn't make mistakes. After all, who, who is that? He's not just ask his wife, right? But Phil and Melissa, they're amazing Christians because they love Jesus best and pursue him most in their lives. They're open to adjustment, to correction, to change. They're just trying to grow. And when you have friends like that, you just hang on to them. Hang on, because it's rarer than you think. And they aren't the only friends we have here like that. Many of you, all of you, right, are our friends. And we're so blessed. We have so many. But when I talk with lots of other pastors, I realize that's just not always the case. I'm so grateful for you and for them. But we have here together. And you can have all that too if you get going and don't quit. Second, true friendship is also more expensive than you know. It's not just rarer than you think. It's more expensive than you know. True friendship, in other words, is just going to cost you. See, Ruth had to bear with Naomi's bitterness, didn't she? And depression and emotional distance and her grieving and her mourning and her loss while Ruth was going through the same thing herself. Ruth could have said, what's up with the old lady? Always being upset or bitter about her loss, her husband, doesn't she know I'm hurting too? You know, doesn't she know what I've been through myself? But Ruth doesn't say that. She doesn't. Ruth pays the cost to be friends with someone in pain and to have, hear me, friendships across multi-generational, multi-ethnic lines doesn't mean we're always going to agree on politics, but it does mean we agree to obey the Bible, to pay the cost, and obey what Proverbs 31 tells. The last instructions of Proverbs 31 was says to speak up, right? And judge fairly, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute, right? For the poor, for minorities, right? For, for women, for those who can't speak for themselves, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's what it means to have that kind of relationship. It means to pay the cost in that way. Not easy. You say, that's political. No, that's called wisdom. That's the Bible. It means it's in your own best interest. All right. And we want to do this here and around the world where we can. Third here, true friendship isn't just rarer than you think, more expensive than you know. It's also more valuable than you can imagine. And when Jesus saved me again back in college, he did the best thing he could have done. He put me in this little multi-ethnic group in the third ward in Houston, Texas with another new Christian from a different ethnic background than I was. And for him, I represented everything wrong with the world. It's like this jock, right? Privilege, scholarship, two-parent home, all that, middle class. He actively disliked me. He's my roommate. Uh, He suggested I was racist. And our whole group was too. From the passenger seat of my car, as I drove him to and from work every day, I'd come home to find he this is just a telling me it's just facts. Come home to find he'd helped himself to my food every day. 
And he ruined the few nice clothes I had because he wore them to his job as a waiter without asking me. And I got angry. I cried. I wrestled with how to love someone in a difficult spot like this while they somehow hate you, right? The depths of my heart were exposed. Stuff started coming up. Started having hard conversations, words like race and privilege and power and all that stuff. And we discovered in the end where we were actually both wrong about each other. And in the, in the, in the end, the only way through it was together. And through many tears and repentance and forgiveness, we formed a deep and close relationship. And so I did what I could do for him. I started cooking dinner. <laughs> that if you're going to take my food, I might as well cook it for both, both of us, right? <laughs> And he literally saved my life one night when our house got shot up. That's another story. That was a costly friendship, but it changed my life. And that relationship has become more valuable to me than I could have possibly foreseen. And so when even Christian people say to me, multi-ethnic friendships don't work, I think four things in a row. I think, number one, you must have never read the book of Ruth or read the rest of the Bible. And second of all... You're wrong because these kind of relationships have changed my life. And third, you're really only saying that because you don't have the guts to persevere in a hard relationship. You, what you're really wanting is an easy, pain-free existence. And the gospel is actually call us to sacrifice and be humble and love and forgive and pray over and over again. And fourth, what you're really saying is that there's no hope for the world and the blood of Jesus isn't great enough to cover our differences. I don't say that. I just think that aloud with you today. God shapes history through powerful friendships. Say, well, where where can I? Where can I get not only what it takes to form, but also to keep those kind of friendships and relationships? So through the third and final way, we see God shaping history here. It's through number three, redemption's power. Back to the story here. After that fateful day that Ruth went out to glean, just happened to meet Boaz, she comes home that night, if you know the story, with not just some scraps, but actually with grade A wheat. It's not just somebody's leftovers. And Naomi says to her, where did you get this? This isn't just, you know, reheated leftovers. And Ruth tells her what happens. She said, I went to the field of a man named Boaz. And Naomi said, did you say Boaz? That man, the verse says, is our close relative. He's one of our guardians or your translation may say kinsmen, (coughs) redeemers. What's that? That's a big word there. Well, there's an interesting law actually back in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. There was something called the year of Jubilee. It was given by God to systematically restrain poverty in the land. So it wasn't just an economic free-for-all in Israel. So every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, the land that maybe was sold by a family in dire straits in poverty, the land that had to be sold through poverty would actually revert back to the original owner. That was God's idea. But before the 50 years were up, the land could be redeemed and bought back by someone called the Goel. That's the word in Hebrew, the goel, a a ransomer, a redeemer who could buy back the land and allow that broken family to have a future. And so when Naomi hears Ruth say the word Boaz, she realizes, oh, that man could actually redeem us. He could buy us out of our poverty, but would he do it? Because not only would Boaz have to spend his own fortune to buy the land for Naomi, he would have to marry a widow. 
in the family, and their child that they would have would have the name of the dead man's family, not Boaz. See, this was called leveret marriage. And leveret marriage cost the redeemer his own name. It was a death. It was the end of his line to do this. So Naomi looks at herself, but she knows she's past childbearing age. So where's a younger widow in the family? Oh, it's Ruth. But Ruth is who? A Moabitess who for all Boaz knew still served pagan gods. And therefore neither Ruth nor his child, if he had it, would be allowed to come to God's temple, to his tabernacle for 10 generations by the law. Who would do such a thing? But Ruth and Naomi, oh, they send something different in Boaz. And so they hatch a plan and they go for broke. And one night, Ruth goes, she finds Boaz asleep after a long day's work. He wakes up, he sees her there, and these are her words to him. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. And in those days, that meant marry me. Marry me. Take me to be your wife. Cover us with your wealth, your power, your authority. Redeem our family. So what would Boaz say? Would he reject her? Call her ridiculous, crazy, offensive? A gold digger, right? Looking for his money? No. Instead, he looks at her and says, I will do everything you ask. Powerful. So Boaz takes Ruth and he doesn't just pay her debt, but he takes her to be his wife, which means that at the moment he marries her, all his wealth becomes hers, which she had never earned, never worked for automatically forever. It's hers. In other words, her debts weren't just paid. No, Ruth got a whole new life. She'd been redeemed in every way hear me. And to have a heart that beats for redemption, gospel redemption, Bible redemption, cultural redemption, is to do the same. See, a heart that beats for redemption goes beyond just allowing people to keep on gleaning scraps of grain in their lives. A heart that beats for redemption moves beyond just keeping your distance from those who don't look like you, or aren't your same age or demographic. A heart that beats for redemption says, I will pay the cost out of my life to heal your broken life. I'll empty out my heart and my house and my home to see you made whole. That's redemption, see? In multi-ethnic relationships, they can be so costly that some don't have the heart to pay the cost. The the way that the other man in this story that Boaz mentioned didn't have the, 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 the power within him to pay the cost. You may remember, Boaz says there's another man. There's someone else who could do this. He had the first right of refusal. Someone else, Ruth, can pay the cost first. But that other man, who remains nameless forever, by the way, looked inside and said, I can't do it. I won't do it. It's too costly. Why would the man say this? He knows. Because if he did this, it would literally cost him everything. See, you think it's just costly to have some relationship. Well, people different than you. Some of you think like, man, I'm losing my culture in these relationships. I'm losing my identity. But look at what Boaz lost. He lost his name, his line, his area was everything. When Abraham looked up to heaven to hope for something, what did he hope for? Oh, not money, not status. It was what? A son, a line, someone to continue his family for forever. It was the most significant cultural marker in Jewish culture. See, your name and your line were everything. And Boaz literally gave up his future future 
his future, his cultural standing, all his money. They went to Ruth. They went to Naomi's family. I mean, we face a little tension on social media and get irritated, right? I mean, we get irritated when someone doesn't feel where we're coming from. But listen, until we give up the thing, our culture prizes the most. We haven't even scratched the surface of the sacrifice that Boaz made here. And in going, for example, going forward in an interracial marriage here, he goes against all the grain, all the norm of his culture. I mean, he had to know. I mean, his business partners and his golfing buddies, right, are asking him, I mean, you're giving all this up for what, Boaz? What are you getting out of it? The answer is, of course, nothing, nothing, nothing. What did Boaz say he got? He didn't say, no, I cannot pay. But he said, I will do everything you ask. Why? Because he loved her. Because he loved her. And love, hear me, only cares about the kind of boundaries that God makes. Not the kind of boundaries that man makes. Love makes you do all kind of crazy, stupid stuff, right? I mean, love makes you pay costs you would never pay. You say, that's nice. Where can I get the power, the vision to do the same? Oh, it's here. But not just seeing Boaz, but the one Boaz points us to, aims us at, a greater redeemer who would come years later like this. See, there's someone, don't you know, who has come and looked at you, gleaning the scraps of grain in your life, trying to pick up the pieces of morality, trying to assemble a life that justifies itself, says I'm good in my own way. Someone who's come and seen your abject spiritual poverty and has said to you, you don't have what it takes to pay the debt you owe to God. But Jesus didn't say, oh, I can't pay or I won't pay. He said, I will pay. And not only that, Jesus doesn't just pay your debt. Oh, he's our flesh and blood, just like Naomi and Boaz, where Boaz was to Naomi's family. Jesus is our kinsman. He didn't just look at us and say, you pay the debt. No, he's the true Boaz who, through the power of his own redemption, shapes history through the power of his own bleeding, beating, redemptive heart, the kind of heart that didn't care about the cost to redeem your life, the kind of heart that said, I don't care if you're from another race or culture. I just want you with me. He, through that sacrifice, has made us one with him. And if you want this city to go forward, our nation to go forward, we have to have a vision for redemption. Same way, heart that's just going to bear the burden and pay the cost. And you're not going to get it from looking inside because how many, you know, that runs out after a while. Have to look to a greater redeemer, Jesus, who's loved you infinitely more, infinitely more than Boaz ever loved Ruth. These kind of relationships are just costly. They cost everything. So costly. But I want to tell you today, I'm so glad to pay it with you. So glad to pay it with you. And cause, because what we have together isn't just costly. Hear me. It's priceless. It's priceless. Because it cost the prince of heaven his blood to do this. Bring us together. Make us one. Make us better together. Say, so this is going to solve every problem? No. It's a start. It's a start.